0: This is Other Voices. We're listening to varied views from local people who might otherwise not be heard. I'm Melissa Hale Spencer, editor of the Altamont Enterprise, which focuses on Albany County, New York. I'm talking to Judith Enk. She has devoted her career to protecting the environment. She's had a role in Initiatives Great, She was regional director of the United States Environmental Protection Agency under the Obama administration, and small. She designed her town's rural recycling program. Ank talks about some of her current causes, including her founding of Beyond Plastics. Her insights are valuable at a time when the current administration is making rollbacks in environmental protections having cast such protections as harmful to business. It seems to me it is more than just a job to you. It seems like it is a passion. Can you just tell us where this came from, why you've devoted really your life's work to protecting the environment? Yes. So I just
1: actually tallied it up. I've been doing this work for about 40 years. And it reminds me, um, it reminds me of that old folk song by Charlie King: "Our life is more than our work, and our work is more than our job." So, this has definitely been a passion. Um, I feel so fortunate that since I graduated college, I've spent, you know, every day working for environmental protection, except when I take days off. Um, <laughs> Where it comes from is a good question. I mean, I, my formative years, I grew up in Green County in the town of Caro in the Catskills. Um, I, I did not, I can't say I was an environmentalist back then, but I spent a lot of time in the woods. Don't tell anyone I rode a mini bike on trails and, <laughs> um, and uh, went ice skating on a really challenging wooded wetland in the, in the winter time. So I think, you know, I, I made it a priority to spend my time outdoors. And then when I was a college student, I was a volunteer with New York Public Interest Research Group, NYPERG, did an internship uh on the New York bottle bill. And that really changed my life. It opened my eyes to what one person can do if they're really dogged and persistent. And um did a few internships with NIPERG, did not pass the bottle bill, but then when I graduated college, I decided I want to keep working on this. So I was able to get a job with environmental advocates for $100 a, a week. I was the slash office manager advocate and um, passed the bottle bill that year. So that felt really good. You know, it's been a huge success in reducing litter
0: and boosting recycling. And I think that's how I launched that's a great story. I love it, because you were really soaking in the environment as a kid without the intellectual framework <laughs> to understand it. And then when you got to college yeah. with this internship, you you came to see where the legal system kind of meets that natural world and can either protect it or not. So I love that story. But here we yeah. are right now in the Trump administration. And I just wonder if you have thoughts One of the things I have to tell you that impressed me, I covered you back, I think it was like, I don't remember, maybe five or six years ago, you came out to Indian Ladder Farms. This is when you were the the regional director of the EPA. And it was to make an announcement Mm -hmm. about um, not using harmful pesticides, which was a good initiative both for the workers as well as the environment. But you made this point that was really prescient, I think, especially for where we are now with our federal government. And that was you discarded the dynamic that progress for business, profit for business meant hurting the environment. You said that Mm -hmm. the two can coexist. You can protect your workers, protect the environment with this new regulation. And at the same time, have this prosperous farm with Indian Ladder Farms, which all of our listeners are very familiar with, that, you know, doesn't use those pesticides. And I just wonder now, with so much of the rhetoric coming out of the current administration about the bottom line for business, um, you know, that we have to roll back these um, environmental protections that have been a long time being made and put in place. Do you have any thoughts on on that dynamic and how it could play out I, federally? I do. I think the Trump administration's march
1: to rolling back environmental regulations is actually not only bad for our health and the environment, but I think it's bad for the economy. Um, Americans want clean air and clean water. In fact, when uh, businesses look at new areas where they want to locate, always in the top five considerations is access to clean water. I think the recent pandemic um, actually tragically uh, reduced air pollution because the economy came to such a, a slow pace. You don't have all the airplanes flying everywhere and as many cars and trucks on the road. And People decided they liked the clean air uh, part of the last few months, but certainly uh, a international pandemic is not a clean air strategy. Um, we know what we need to do to clean the air and clean the water, and it's not one thing. It's a bunch of important decisions, even at the local level, not just federally, Um What I'm reminded of in terms of the business case for a clean environment is the Trump administration has either rolled back or delayed 100 major federal environmental regulations, everything from drinking water to the pesticide uh, exposure issue that I talked about at the wonderful Indian Letter Farms, um, uh, toxics issues in general, climate change. On that list of 100, uh, included rolling back the fuel efficiency standards for cars that the Obama administration adopted. So this means you and I will pay more at the pump for gas. We'll also pay with lung disease, with more air pollution. But a number of car companies who don't make decisions year to year; they make decisions every, you know, five years or ten-year time horizon. A number of car companies opposed rolling back the fuel efficiency standards. And those are the companies that are going to thrive in the new economy. Um, Post-COVID, we cannot go back to business as usual. We cannot go back to a world where carbon emissions increase and therefore climate change damages increase. We can't go back to exposing people who work on farms to pesticides. I am very concerned about how long it's going to take to put my old agency, the EPA, back together again. Assuming there is not a second term of the Trump presidency, Um, it it is—it'll be like putting Humpty Dumpty back together again. But we'll have a roadmap because we have the list of all the regulations that the Trump administration either re- repealed or attempted to repeal. By the way, they are losing a lot in court when state attorneys general or national environmental groups like Earth's Justice or Natural Resources Defense Council, when they sue the Trump administration for the rollbacks, more often than not, they win. Um, so it's going to be a very tedious and crucially important process. Of putting these federal agencies back together again. And it and it doesn't have to be the way they were pre-Trump, because while I am very grateful for the privilege of serving at the EPA during the Obama administration, I have to say uh, there were opportunities for more innovation, for better engagement with the public. You know, what I would ask the EPA staff to do is Please don't write documents for businesses in a way that the business has to hire a lawyer or an engineering firm to understand it. Can we? Can we p- please be clear in our communications? And also, um, you know, we made a point of putting a lot of information out in multiple languages. Um, EPA is a terrific agency. Turns fifty this year. It was established by Richard Nixon. Um, but there's also room for improvement there. Um, how how the agency can be uh, more accessible to businesses, elected officials, green innovation companies. So I don't want us to just go back to pre-Trump EPA. I think EPA and other federal agencies um, can, can get an upgrade. Uh, but the most important thing is to get EPA back in the business of protecting the environment, something that they've not been doing for the past three and a half years.
0: Yes. Well, I was struck with what you just said about, you know, it isn't always at the federal level. If you could just talk about some of the different levels where either individuals can make a difference, local governments can make a difference. And I see from reading your resume, you developed a recycling program for your own town. Um, And where state government can make a difference and i know right now you're involved in the legislation for um norlight and have been with also um leparge uh in mm-hmm. quemans so if you could just kind of walk us through the different levels and layers um because so often i feel like people say you know i want to do something what can i do kind of thing and um You know, it would just be empowering to hear from someone with your expertise about what we can do, each of us, at those different levels.
1: Sure. Well, the first thing is to pick an issue or two issues that you really feel passionately about and and get educated on it. Um, I'm very involved in air pollution issues locally, which I want to talk about, but What I spend most of my time on, actually, is working to reduce plastic pollution. I started an organization called Beyond Plastics. Uh, We happen to be based at Bennington College in southern Vermont, but we're a nationwide project, and people can go to beyondplastics.org to get our latest information and sign up for a free email list, and we're also very active on social media. Uh, Today, for instance, I'll be watching the court oral arguments on a legal challenge to New York's plastic bag ban. New Yorkers use a staggering 23 billion plastic bags every year and we that we have a law on the books that's just not being enforced and it was challenged by a plastic bag company. So I don't even want to you know, let another month pass without that law being on the books. And that's a good example of local... Citizens coming together on an issue, we had a number of local plastic bag bans on the book, including in Albany County, um, in City of Troy, um, and when you get enough of the local laws, then. The state legislature feels like they have to act. They don't want the dreaded patchwork quilt um, uh, of different laws and rules in different areas. And so the nice thing about that is we all can access our city council or our county legislature. You don't have to go to Washington. You don't have to hire a lobbyist. Uh, you can contact your own elected officials. I always recommend that people not do it alone. No matter how smart you think you are, um, it's better to work in groups and it's also more fun to work in groups. When, when you do environmental protection work, you meet some incredibly wonderful, smart, engaging, funny people. And it's always fun to enter these battles as a group as opposed to alone. So, um, you know, I, I say you pick an issue, you find some allies, and there's so much good information on the internet. Make sure you, you have credible, timely information, and then just go at it. Um, an example I want to use that would be helpful, um, for people to all under, also understand that you can pull a couple different levers, levers, levers of government at the same time is an interesting situation in Albany County. In the most southern part of the county, we have the Lafarge cement plant that uh, wants to import a large amount of waste tires to be burned at the cement plant, which I think is a terrible idea. A lot of those waste tires could be shredded and and, uh, used in a recycling capacity. Um, and I'm also concerned that it will increase air pollution uh, in the Hudson Valley. On the m- most northern part of Albany County, uh, there is the Norlite Hazardous Waste Incinerator, which we learned in February was burning very toxic firefighting foam that was being discarded by the U.S. military and, and other parties. Uh, and unfortunately, that firefighting foam contains PFAS chemicals. They're known as forever chemicals because they never degrade. How do you tackle those issues when in both instances, the New York State Department of Environmental Conservation was not proactively protecting public health? In fact, they approved burning tires at Lafarge without even the benefit of an environmental impact statement. And when we blew the whistle in February about the uh, toxic firefighter foam burning in Norlite in Cohoes, the response from the Department of Environmental Conservation was that they would be working with Norlight to develop a test burn protocol. Well, you're supposed to do that before you burn a new waste stream. And we know from the Wall Street Journal that more than two million pounds of this PFAS Uh, chemical in foam um, was burned in Cohoes in 2018 and 2019. It was shipped from 25 different states, including 60 military sites. So a little late to be doing a test burn, you do that before you allow this burning. And I might add, um, the mayor of Cohoes, Mayor Keeler, who's been a real champion for public health and clean air here, has said he doesn't want his community to be a guinea pig for test burns. So, what do we do with these two really complex issues um, where the state regulatory agency has failed us? Well, then we turn to local government. So, the Albany County Legislature is considering a bill. It's called Local Law B, the Clean Air Bill. So Local Law B, as in burning, would prohibit tire burning uh, in Albany County. It would prohibit burning of toxic firefighting foam and other materials. So everyone has a role to play in terms of contacting their own county legislator to urge them to support Local Law B, and then at the state level, remarkably, the New York State Legislature, which has not been taking up a lot of business lately because of COVID, um, the state legislature passed did, it. Yes, right. Yes, yeah. unanimous. <laughs> yes, you, yes, unanimously passed a bill to prohibit um, Norlight from burning toxic firefighter foam. The big question now: Will Governor Cuomo sign or veto the bill? So that is one simple thing that people can do, uh, write to or call Governor Cuomo and urge him to sign Senate Bill 7880B into law. Uh, And I want to thank the legislative sponsors of this bill who worked really hard to get it on the agenda, Assemblymember John McDonald and Senator Neil Breslin. And now we need them to get this over the finish line. We've got to get Governor Cuomo to sign this bill into law uh, so that the residents of not just Cahos, um, certainly Cahos, um, but the whole um, Hudson-Mohawk Valley region is exposed to these air contaminants. So most of this work was done by volunteers who care about their community, who came together and just rolled up their sleeves and started working.
0: That's a great story, and I hope it has a happy ending. Um, so, in, in the course of this discussion, you raised several things I wanted to ask you about, and, When you were talking about the plastic bag ban, which the state had adopted and was just beginning to implement when all the regulations came down for, you know, protecting people from the coronavirus, and I had read varying accounts, but didn't get a definitive view. Um, The store that I shop at, you know, started not taking your cloth bags, which, you know, I bring in and wash, with the premise that somehow um, cloth bags were more likely to be transmitting the disease than plastic bags. And so they've just kind of gone back to where they were before the law was passed. And I wondered if you just had any insights on on that.
1: Well, the plastic industry instantly exploited the coronavirus and started spreading misinformation, uh, suggesting that single-use disposable bags were better used than reusable cloth bags, and that's just not true. Um, the New England Journal of Medicine had a report in March that um, if you're concerned about, well, let me just start by saying I take coronavirus very, very seriously, And medical experts have confirmed, including the CDC, that your major way of getting the virus is through aerosols and person-to-person contact, not from surfaces. So we've all been madly wiping down our doorknobs and kitchen counters, and and that's all fine. But that's not your main exposure uh, pathway for COVID-19. there has been uh, not enough but some science looking at how long covid-19 lasts on surfaces ironically it lasts on cardboard for about 1 day it lasts on plastic surfaces surfaces for 3 days and there's not been much on how long it would last on your reusable bags. But what we're urging people to do is throw your cloth bags in with your laundry, wash it with soap. And if your reusable bag is plastic, wipe it down, um, you know, with whatever you're wiping your your kitchen cabinets with. Um, if store clerks are concerned that people are not washing or wiping down their bags, one thing you can do is leave your bags in your cart and do the um, packing yourself. Um, So I'm not at all concerned that reusable bags are a source of COVID. um, And there's no scientific reason uh, to be using plastic bags as a replacement. So um, the, the state did not repeal the plastic bag ban. It is still on the books. As you mentioned, the effective date was March 1st. At the 11th hour, a plastic bag company did sue the state of New York to try to get the law thrown out. The judge did not issue a temporary restraining order, but New York State DEC agreed to a 30-day extension on enforcing the law. And then COVID hit, and so they kept extending it two more times. And um, we now need to get the judge's decision, which I expect will be just fine. And then we need New York DEC to inform stores that they need to start complying with the plastic bag ban. I think it's reasonable to give them a few weeks advance notice, not a few months. Um, And I think most stores know that this is coming. Um, you know, they they got a reprieve because also it was just so hectic in March and April with COVID. Um, I, who care a lot about plastic issues, did not think that was the top issue that policymakers should be focusing on. But now that the economy is reopening and people are out shopping, we've got to get back to abandoning plastic bags and relying on reusable bags.
0: Well, thank you for that update. (laughs) And I just feel a little more secure now in my rebellion and bringing in my cloth bags. Um, So tell us a little about your founding of Beyond Plastics. You had mentioned it, but um, why did you found it? And what is your hope for how it will influence policy and practices? Well, Beyond Plastics
1: is a project. It's nationwide in scope. We happen to be based at Bennington College, who the college was very welcoming to me. And I teach a class there on plastic pollution. It was the first ever college level class on plastic pollution, which I offer every semester. In fact, in in the fall semester, it will be offered to non-students. A one credit class you could take for credit or not. Um, So people are up to date on plastics issues. Um, I really am very concerned that we are turning our oceans into landfills. Most plastic in the river that flows into the ocean comes from the land. It's when a plastic bottle or a plastic bag is littered and, and gets into the storm system and ultimately shoots through a sewage treatment plant and gets into rivers and oceans. Um, when it gets out in the ocean, let's say it's a plastic water bottle, the sun makes the plastic brittle, the wave action acts like a paper shredder, and before you know it, you've got hundreds if not thousands of little pieces of microplastics in the ocean. And those microplastics are consumed by marine life, whether it's fish or sea turtles uh, or seabirds. Big, big problem with seabirds. So that, you know, that's kind of the obvious concern with plastics. But I'm also concerned that plastic is made from chemicals and a byproduct of hydrofracking called ethane. Uh, And those ethane cracker facilities, they're called. They make the ingredients of plastic and they are super emitters of carbon and also air toxins. So we're not going to solve the climate crisis unless we incorporate policies that reduce plastic pollution. I'm concerned about the health impacts of plastic. Uh, a recent study documented that you and I are breathing in about a credit card worth of plastic every week. So plastic is in the air. It's in water. It's in beer. It's in salt. And it's in us. I cannot say precisely what it is doing to our bodies. Um, there's not been enough medical research on this. There was a very small study looking at the presence of plastic in human poop. And it's in it was in the poop 100% of the time. So it, it is in us. And uh, that raises some significant health concerns. And then, of course, there are environmental justice components to this, because the facilities that make plastic are almost always in low-income communities of color. So I looked at the whole life cycle of plastics, and I also know that plastic recycling is an abject failure. We've only recycled 8.5% of plastics, typically. In your own home, you should only um, recycle plastic that has number one or number two uh, on, the, on the bottom of the container. All the other plastics are not recycled, and many are sent to other countries. There's a fantastic new movie called The Story of Plastic, which you can get on various um, media platforms. Uh, I have my students uh, watch that movie, and then we have a really, really interesting discussion afterwards. So that looks at plastics through the prism of international human rights, because we are shipping our non-recyclable plastics to other countries. So this is a long, long way to answer your question. The plastics issue uh, touches on everything I deeply care about. And so I established this project Beyond Plastics with a goal of eliminating plastic pollution everywhere. We are small but mighty, and uh, we rely a lot on donations from individuals, um, and I work with students, and there's a lot of good information on our website. We have been busier than ever uh, since the pandemic hit, and um, we have a lot of education and outreach to do.
0: Well, you've certainly taken on a Goliath. I mean, plastic... It would, it would take a huge cultural shift. I know there's the Break Free from Plastic Pollution Act that is probably a long shot to get through the Republicans that it would at least make producers responsible for collecting it. But how you would have that huge cultural shift, all kinds of things that used to function without plastic are now – there's plastic everywhere. And it just – it seems yeah. like – a really daunting task, but I admire you for taking it on. And Bennington College, I'd like to hear just a little about that. My impression of that college, it's such a beautiful place, but also wasn't that one of the first colleges that used this idea of um, people, maybe particularly in the arts, who were actually practitioners of whatever it was they were teaching? Is that still something that's part of what Bennington does? Having Yes. Yes. Bennington,
1: yeah then is such an innovative college and um i'm happy to announce we have a, a new president I, I loved the previous presidents but we have a new president um laura walker who previously served as the executive director of wmic the um, npr station in new york city they really prides itself on how having professors who are practitioners. So that's why it was a great fit for me. Um, I teach and I also advocate. I happen to be um, situated in a center at the college called the Center for the Advancement of Public Action, which does incredibly innovative work on food policy, Um, We have a a program where Bennington professors teach in a nearby federal prison, a state prison rather. Um, We do a lot on uh, forced migration. Um, And then the art component of the college is so interesting. So, for instance, um, some of the professors and students were commissioned to do public art at um, new embassies around the world. Hmm. And they did one with a, um, a climate change theme, uh, in Europe. Um, it's such a dynamic college. My only regret is that I didn't go there as an undergrad. There's no, there are no majors. So the students pick an area of study that they want to focus on and they do a project their last three years at the college. Uh, answering a question, and all of their classwork and internships revolve around answering that question. In my classes, I have first-year students and four-year students. We don't really use freshman, sophomore uh, labels, and the students that are attracted to Bennington College are largely self-directed. Uh, they they are there for the love of learning. Um, they have to figure out what they want to get out of their college education, and they have an array of subject areas. I mean, the college is really well known for art and dance and writing, uh, but also very strong science department, political science department, um, literature department, So it is I know I'm now just doing a commercial for the college, (laughs) but I'm so I'm so enthusiastic about it. And, you know, and to be honest, it had a reputation of only affluent white kids can go there. That's no longer the case. Um, A large percentage of students are first in their family like me to go to college. Uh, I think about a third of our students are international which makes the class discussions so much more dynamic and richer. I've had students from Nepal, uh from Africa, from India, from Mexico, from Finland. I want to hear their ideas on how we tackle plastic pollution. So the international students just add a lot to the fabric of the college and the professors are great, you know, they're they are grounded in, in real life. In This semester, for instance, in the fall, my colleague, Dr. David Bond, and I will be teaching a class on the 2020 presidential election. Um, and that's the great thing about Bennington. Professors can come up with a topic, and if it meets the, the requirements of a two-credit or four-credit class, you teach it. So that'll, you know, my, my thinking was I was going to be following the presidential campaign like a hawk anyway. So um, I will be co-teaching a class on how the election unfolds.
0: Oh, I think that sounds fascinating. And I think what you got out of your college experience that relates to what you love about Bennington was the pivotal eye-opening thing for you was the internship on the bottle bill. So that was like a yeah. hands-on sort of thing. That, that um, And we're so close to being out of time. I just wondered... You might have your own closing thoughts, and that's what you should go with. But I wondered if you have any thoughts on this movement that I think is so important on One Health and this idea of um, returning to one of my original questions that nature should be the foundation for development and that coming out of the pandemic with these projects rather than rolling back environmental restrictions like the trump administration is trying to do and i understand the need to get you know america building again it just seems like it's a perfect time to use green initiatives and to try to do Mm -hmm. things that will going forward help the economy and at the same time help the environment and i don't know if you have thoughts on that as well oh i i I sure do yes and i i think um this
1: is an opportunity to do a Green New Deal. I mean, this is the perfect time. Let's transition away from a fossil fuel economy. Let's stop using so many toxic chemicals in products and on our food. Let's look at um, making cities more sustainable. I mean, there's been a dramatic increase in New York City in bicycling. Uh, because people are concerned about taking the subway. I worry so much about not having a reliable subway system in New York City. But if people want to hop on bikes, let's make it safe for them. Let's have more protected bike lanes. I think another world is possible. And I think it would be a terrible thing if we just return to business as usual Um environmentally, but also socially. I mean, look, the the major problem with COVID is people getting sick and the disproportionate impact of who's getting sick and the strain on our healthcare system. Um, One positive is all the time we've had together at home, as long as you're not in a domestic violence situation, which obviously is quite serious. But eating meals together as families You know, cooking from scratch, planting a bigger garden, um, talking to your neighbors, helping your neighbors. I mean, I don't know what I do without my neighbors. You know, one helps me with with grocery shopping because I'm not going into stores until there's a vaccine. But um, I think it's an opportunity to build community and um, reimagine. How we want the economy to work. And it's imperative that we link it to the current drive for racial justice. This is all connected disparities in health care, environmental racism. You know, the Norlight hazardous waste incinerator is right next to a public housing complex where 70 families live in Cahos. But putting racism and white supremacy, front and center when we reimagine uh, what we want our society and our economy to look like is important. And I say it in that order on purpose, our society and our economy. Not every decision has to be made based on economic growth. So there's, there's a lot of work to do, but lucky for us, there's a lot of people who have been awakened and who are ready to jump in politically with groups and work for change.